It's Scotty from Zenium Real Wealth, and we are broadcasting live on Facebook. Obviously, you know that because you can see that because you're watching it right now. And uh, this is the first time we're using some new software by StreamYard. There you go. Something a bit special. All right. This is our September 2019 live Q&A. So we do these once a month uh, at the end of the month to give you guys a chance to chat to us about anything to do with property. Uh, any questions you've got, pop them on the stream and they'll come up here and I'll be able to answer them as we go. Uh, that's for the live questions. Other than that, we have some questions that people have sent in over the past couple of weeks uh, that weren't super urgent and that we thought we'd save to answer for this evening. So let's kick off on that. So don't forget to put any comments uh, in the comment box right here on the screen. Okay, so I've got some questions here. All right. For the past couple of weeks, we've talked about partner developments. Uh, and when we talk about developments, there's a couple of different ways to go. Uh, they can be developments you do yourself, which we call small construction projects. There can be larger projects that you do with a few others, larger projects that are done with a developer. Uh, there's many different ways to sort of skin that cat, if I'm allowed to say that still. Um, so this question here relates to a small partner development. So that's a, that's a project where a couple of people get together with a developer and do a small project. And the question is, what is the minimum buy-in for a partner project. So a minimum buy-in is, is not necessarily dictated by us. Uh, so we we align a group of like-minded people together, um, not necessarily a syndicate, but we'll call it a partnership or a, or an investment group. Uh, and they, they sort of decide how much they're putting into a project. So we'll review a project on their behalf and say, look, here's the FISO, here's what we think it's worth. Uh, here's what we think is how much uh, cash is needed. Here's how you're going to get loans, all that sort of stuff. And we will put that to this group of people. That group of people then decides that they want to be involved. And someone might have 100,000, some might have 50, some might have 200,000, like whatever. That's got nothing to do with us, right? That's all up to what you want to put in. So you put that in, you get grab a group of people that we've arranged, put that together. And then we help manage the project and the site and we help them uh, do what needs to be done for the project. We've got a project manager that can come on board, uh, sorts out all that sort of stuff and runs that small. Now we're talking small projects here. So we're talking uh, maybe a triplex or a large duplex, something like that. Anything like that where the person, uh, it's not like an overly taxing kind of uh, development. That's what we call a micro project. And we definitely do them uh, together with partners. We organize that. And we also arrange it directly for some clients that want to do it on their own. And those projects range in size. So the micro construction project for a client can range from, say, a simple duplex at, say, 700, 750,000 up to something like double that, 1.5 million for a triplex or something a bit bigger. So in that space of uh, value there is there's a whole range of different projects that can happen. So that's 
that is project specific. So what your minimum buy-in is, is depends on how much you've got, the people that you're working with, your comfort level, that sort of thing, and you get to make that decision. Uh, I'm a homeowner. What is your active capital and how do you access it? Okay, so this relates to uh, maybe last week or the week before when we were talking about our impact strategy, so impact investing. So impact is invest money uh, from projects and active capital transactions. So an active capital transaction is simply a transaction where the money you're putting in is working, okay? So it's not just simply a buy and hold. So you take uh, your $100,000, you're going to buy a $500,000 buy and hold property and then you reassess it again in 20 years' time. That's not an active capital transaction. An active capital transaction would be uh, I'll take $200,000, uh, we'll go and build a duplex for, say, eight hundred grand. Uh, we'll sell it for nine hundred. dollars we're using really round figures here, and pay my taxes, and I'll keep the balance, as in you will keep the balance on that transaction in 12 months' time, you go and do it again. So that's an active capital transaction. It's completely different from parking and buy and hold, and it is totally uh, great for supercharging your wealth, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's not much point just buying and holding. Buy and holding, all you're doing is you're waiting for, you know, one of two things, okay? You're waiting for inflation to happen, okay? Because as soon as inflation happens, then asset prices move. Or you're waiting for uh, the land to capture uh, the economic rent gains, okay? And that can be from infrastructure projects or whatever is going on. Uh, so that's definitely a better way than just waiting for inflation, but you're still just waiting. You're not doing anything active about it. So this question relates to, you know, what is active capital? Well, active capital can be any capital, any money that you have that you decide it to be active, okay? So it can't just be lazy sitting around. It has to be used for something. If you think about it, you've got a couple hundred thousand in equity in your own home and you decide that, well, I want to buy another property, okay? And the old way of buying and holding, you buy another property, can be established, can be new, whatever it is, and you uh, you go on there, you buy another property, and then what? You wait. You wait, how long are you going to wait for? Do you wait for three years? Do you wait for 15 years? Like when do you have enough in your house and that property to refinance to pull another one or 200000 out to go again? And this is what we're talking about. That's very inactive capital transactions, very inactive transactions full stop. What you need to do is you need to take your money, okay, make it work for you. The profits that you earn off that money after you pay taxes, remember you always pay taxes, then you can got a choice, right? You can either pay down your personal debt or whichever structure that you've realised the gains in. Let's not get into structures tonight. Or you can use that profit that you've made to then go and invest in property, okay? So you've still got your original capital there and yet you've made money on top of your capital and that money is what you go and do, your buy and holds if that tickles your fancy. So your original capital is then still free and then you go and do it again and you go and do it again and you do it again. And this is what happens. That's you using your capital actively. It's making profit and those profits are the things that you invest into your buy and hold. And that's what that active capital transaction is. 
Um, in relation to the projects I mentioned before, will some developers take less than 50,000? Well, yeah, as I said, like it's not always just developers that we're partnering with. Sometimes it's just groups of people that are, you know, forming a little development group and it's totally up to that group. Um, you know, I wouldn't really like to go into this with, you know, a thousand bucks. I don't think it's just not worth your time. It has to be worth your time. So, and it has to be of an amount that is uh, not going to kill you financially if things go bad uh, because things can go bad in any property transaction and especially the development. Like the small development projects are definitely less risky than some of your your medium-sized ones or some of the ones that you're uncomfortable with or you don't know anything about, but it still doesn't mean that there's no risk. There's a lot of people out there looking for things without any risk, and I think that uh, you're not going to find that. I know that we spoke to a client uh, earlier this week, no, last week, and she had lost money in uh, some sort of project. I think it was options or something like that. I'd I was uh, not party to her full story and it was not something that it was really, you know, maybe a bit sad. And she was promised a really high return, like it was above 20%, right, that she was promised and she she didn't get it in this property options or townhouse deal, whatever it was. And, uh, and the thing was that she was still chasing that return now and she said, oh, if you can find me something that pays me over 20%, uh, then I'll be in. And the team and I looked at each other and went, well, you know, that's half the reason why you're in trouble in the first place is because you were chasing those hugely huge returns that people were promising. There needs to be something backing it up, okay? There has to be things that back it up behind the scenes. Where is it attached to real property? Uh, is it not an option? Is it something that's actually real and tangible like a development and there's actually costs there and you've got a house attached to it so you can actually claim on it at the end? Like it's, it just can't be pie in the sky. So that's really important. Uh, do people uh, borrow more money from the bank? This is back to the active capital question. Do people borrow more money from the bank or just use the capital they have? Uh, yeah, look, if you're borrowing from the bank and it's against the property, then it's obviously equity, okay? Um, and that's your choice if you want to put that into a transaction. Uh, that's completely adjusts the risk profile, and that's a decision that you need to make by yourself with your spouse or with your financial planner or all of the above. Uh, I guess it's easy if your spouse is your financial planner, so who knows? Uh, that could be an easy one for you. But at the end of the day, um, we have some clients that uh, in active capital transactions with literal capital like cash in bank sitting there doing nothing that they're putting in uh, and we have a bucket load of clients that have drawn down on a home loan or an equity loan to use that instead of parking in buy and hold that they're in there doing active capital transactions that we talk about so that's totally your call uh, to the questioner all right in a partner project, what is the risk involved for each individual financially? For example, if someone put in 50000 of their own money, what is the risk? All right, so the risk in any project is, is the money. I mean, that's the risk. So when you assess a project, you've got to look at a couple of things. You've got to look at how viable is the project looking to be and the amount of money that you're putting into the project, um, 
what is the risk rating or, or, or i.e. The, the interest rate potential uh, on that money? And it, the higher the interest rate, as everyone knows, is the higher the risk. Now, there'll be people that say it doesn't always work that way, but in reality, it's this. If you can get your one and a half or maybe 2% in a term deposit in the bank, everyone knows that at the end of that three months, six months, 12 months, you can call on that money, it's going to be there. Now, we're not getting into the whole fact that if banks call on your money and they do a bail-in and all that sort of stuff, we're not, we're not talking about that, okay? We're talking about, you know, the perception of risk. So you go, you've got your 100000 in the bank, you go there, there's still $100,000 there. Now, we're also not talking about is that losing money because of inflation or whatever. We're just literally talking about the cash. So you've got your 100000 in the bank, it's fairly safe. You go somewhere else, okay, you put your 100000 into uh, buy standalone investment property, you know, then your 100000 is at risk there, okay? So if that $500,000 property drops in value by 10%, you've lost 50,000, the bank still has a loan of 400,000, the property is valued at 450,000, you're the one who's lost 50 grand, okay? The bank hasn't, they've still got their security in place. So with a development or a partner project, it depends on the type of project you're talking about and the type of, uh, you know, people that are involved and the structures around it. So on a small partner project like a small duplex that you're going to build with a couple of others, it's not too different to a house and land package, okay? You've got the bank has the first mortgage and the people putting the capital in has their second mortgage and away they go. On a slightly larger development, I say an eight to ten lot subdivision or something, of which we've done a few uh, with clients over the years, um, that risk is obviously a little bit different, but the return is probably slightly different. So you're looking at maybe a, an eight percentish return on a duplex project you're going to push that to 14 ish percent on a um on like a land subdivision or something like that that's really where you're going to sit with this type of returns and their average returns and each project's different blah blah, blah. We, we know all that so the risk is always that if the property drops more than the capital that's put in or up to the capital that's put in then you know, that whole amount of capital can be gone. So you need to choose very wisely when you when you put money into what project and how much. And that's probably the best thing that I can say about those sort of questions there. So uh, we always have clients that ask, can I do something without any risk? Uh, and the simple answer is no. I mean, even in a bank, there's going to be risk. In property, there's risk. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The whole concept of safe as houses is, you know, fairly legit. You know, the house can be insured. It's very hard to steal a house as it's bolted down, all that sort of stuff. But it doesn't necessarily mean that property as an investment is 100% guaranteed. And if anyone tells you it is, then I would say run because uh, it's just simply not the case. All right, have we got any other questions coming in? I think that is all the questions we've got on this page here. I'm sorry, I'm checking a couple of different pages as I go, guys, because uh, that's what happens on the modern way of living online. Okay. All right, we've got another one coming here. Thanks, Jace. Okay, some people talk yield and others talk net return. Can you please explain the difference 
and which is the better, more accurate way to look at. All right, I'm going to need a drink for this, so excuse me. For those of you who watch these often, I don't have my three-litre bottle today. I got told off one too many times that you couldn't keep seeing my beautiful face, so I've gone to a clear glass instead. All right, yield versus net return. Okay, yield is fairly simple to work out, okay? So you've got the rent of a property uh, and you know the price that it's either being sold for or the price you paid. So let's do it with some round figures. We have uh, $500 a week in rent on a $500,000 property. Now, your gross yield on that is worked out the following way. So not taking into account uh, vacancies and all that, and this is where things can change and you really should do it proper, through a proper spreadsheet, but the rule of thumb napkin sort of way of doing it, if you want to compare just properties across the board, is you do $500 a week times 52 weeks of the year is $26,000. You divide that by the purchase price of the property, which in this case is $500,000. And then you multiply that by 100. So that gives you 5.2%, which is exactly what we knew. So that 5.2% is there. So $500 a week, $500,000 property, 5.2%. That's a very easy way to work out yield. The problem with net return is, well, where does your net return start and where does it stop? So your net return, okay, we've got our 500 bucks a week in your rent. Oh, now our rental manager charges, I don't know, 30 bucks a week, right? So we take that off because we're actually not getting that. I mean, we're getting it, we're paying them. So then that's that's four four seventy. So we can work that out. Oh, hang on, Tick. Then there's rates. So rates, that might be 1800 a year. Oh, there's water, headworks. We can charge for excess because it's a newer property, but there's only headworks, uh, sorry, head charges. Uh, so, so we've got that added in. Oh, there's always maintenance on a property, so we've got to add that in. Um, oh, don't, is there depreciation? Oh, no, I don't think I'm going to charge. Oh, sometimes we get a lawnmower, guys. Sometimes we don't. You see what happens? You start going to net return and you're going, well, okay, you either got to include everything or you include nothing. Otherwise, you can't compare accurately. If you go on a gross yield and it works for you, then you can go and look in and you can factor in some of your known costs and perhaps estimated costs and dig a bit deeper. So I would always use a gross yield to just sort out the wheat from the chaff and then find out, okay, I want to dig deeper on this property or this project or whatever, and then you go into deeper amounts there and go, okay, let's do a, a FISO on a project or a cash flow analysis on a property and say, okay, well, here's the rates, here's this and this. The other issue with net return is that some people talk about net return before interest and others talk about it after interest, like it's totally at the end. Well, if you're doing a net return after interest and costs and you're at a 5% gross yield, I would suggest that you are in trouble. Our data suggests that, uh, and from everything that we bought over the last 15 years, we work an average of 30% cost of rent to run the property. That doesn't include interest. That's just to run the property. So that includes rental management rates, some maintenance and all that. And as a property gets older, sometimes that can jump up to 35 plus percent. So if one, if 30% of your costs and you're a 5% yield, you're already looking at a 3.5% yield, okay? We've got to take off 1.5% to run the property. We're back down to 3.5%. 
just to actually get money into the bank. And then if your bank loan interest rate is at or above 3.5%, okay, say it was 100% lend, then you, you, you're you not, not making money, right? It's all over. And that's what, that's where the whole negative gearing and stuff like that comes in. And then it's also where it comes in is like, well, what was your, to get your net return, what was your, your deposit? Did you use 10%, 20%? Was it SMSF? Was it 40%? Is it commercial? Like, what is it? So, and that changes that amount of interest that needs to be paid. And then the other question is, well, am I including my principal payment or not? So we stick away from a net return in terms of giving those figures. We give gross yields and that's the reason why because it absolutely makes a whole bunch of difference. All right. Um, While there's more questions coming in, I always talk about the books I'm reading at the moment uh, and I'll recap. I always, always, always mention this book. Let's clean it up so it looks good. Phil, if you're watching, which I'm sure you will be, uh, make sure you read this book here, The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking by Philip J. Anderson. It's a very, very good book, fairly thick. You see that? Look at that, hey? Nice and thick and lots and lots of bits and pieces in there. Covers real estate cycles for many, many years. It's worth a read. Don't read it when you're too tired, otherwise you will fall asleep in some regards because it's very data-driven, but hugely interesting for those people that are interested in that. The book I talked about last time that I finished last time as well, don't forget to get a copy of this, Rethinking the Economics of Land and Housing. It is pretty good. Um, I really enjoyed that book. Um, It had a lot of data. It's very UK-based, and they talk about lots of things there with um, land the economic rent and land capturing the gains of property. All right, this is the one I read at the moment. You can see because it's got my little highlighter in. I always read with a highlighter. Hands up if you read with a highlighter. Uh, this one is an Australian book. Where am I going here? I'm all over the shop. Game of Mates, How Favours Bleed the Nation. I'll get that out of the way. Cameron Murray and Paul, I was going to say Frittata, but it's not Fridges, Fridges, whatever. Um that's worthy of a look as well. Uh, so Game of Mates, How Fla- Favours Bleed the Nation by Cameron Murray. All right, get that on Booktopia or wherever you get your books. It's totally Australian-based, okay? So it's really, really interesting. Heaps of examples in there about how property developers, politicians, um, mining magnates, all sorts of stuff uh, goes on, super funds, how all the favours there get in there and uh, essentially take wealth from Aussies and perhaps a few things, what you can do about it. All right, another question's come in. Most people seem to build duplexes for cash flow, but in most cases, they need to hold them for a while to realise any gains in value. What is the key to building a duplex with instant equity? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, That's actually a service that we do uh, uh, all the time for our clients, and they're not easy to find, right? Because the secret to that is you've got to find the land at the right price, uh, and you've got to make sure the build works and, of course, then you can sell them. So <clears throat> most people do view duplexes for cash flow. Uh, I don't. I think there's other property that definitely cash flows better than a duplex. And straight away, I think of a dual key, which is uh, a property that can't be split. So it can be a normal house with a one or two bedroom unit attached. They're going to cash flow better because they're cheaper to build than a duplex. Um, but... They can't be split like a duplex. Uh, 
another property would be a commercial property like a shed or uh you know uh, a retail if you're into that office space whatever you know car parks these are car parks that you know yield better than duplexes okay so why do people build duplexes well duplexes are a bit of a secret uh in the open right so a duplex is good because this is why i reckon they're a bit of a goer is because most of the people that buy a duplex right the end user of a duplex the end purchaser of a duplex can't really afford to build a duplex so duplexes sit in this space in queensland especially between attached housing like townhouses and fully detached housing like small small houses so they sit in that so you've got to get your pricing right so we try and work at around about a 10% valuation below an equivalent house and land package or house package for your duplex right that's that's enough you just, if you can't stretch that 10% to the house you'll happily buy the duplex cuz it's still got some yard it's got one attached wall or sometimes not an attached wall because you can get it on a good block um and that can be a real winner that will absolutely sell because the people who buy that are happy to save 10% or so on a house or a house and land package there's a good chance that if you're selling it for 450 and houses are selling at 499 or something or you're selling at 449 499 you get what i'm saying there's a pretty good chance that that buyer at your 449 duplex couldn't afford the 800 odd thousand or 850,000 or whatever it costs to build the whole duplex and sell one off. So that's why there's a market there. So duplexes totally have a great position in the market and in fact uh we are in the active hunt for duplexes. We always are. Um we we have a list of clients and there's a client in particular who's been waiting now for 6 weeks for us to get a duplex because we've looked at about 8 sites and haven't been happy. But we're pretty close on his, and I talked to him again this afternoon, and he's just chomping at the bit to get into his duplex because he knows he'll be in and out in twelve months. And we've got a list of about three or four others that are giving us you know eyes after that, and then we've got other people kicking around. So they're very, very popular for what we do, and the reason is exactly that: we build them, we get them tenanted, and then we sell them off. Okay, the clients have a choice of keeping half, keeping both, selling all, whatever they want to do. that's what they can do. So that is why we do duplexes. Okay. Internal question here, are there any current projects available to join in on? Uh yes, there is. It's always fun and games to join in on here at Zenium. So uh Zenium program is full of lots of real estate fun. So uh we have uh a couple of duplex, larger duplex properties that we look at. Uh there is an eight lot subdivision uh that we know of where we've got clients in that is looking for some other participants to be involved and we have a commercial property for some people to be involved in as well that's commercial sheds so yes absolutely if you want to be involved in a small project uh with others or a really micro project by yourself like a duplex to build and sell in 12 months 100% hit us up and we will be able to sort you out on that for sure. <clears throat> All right, we are coming to the end of our 30 minute session. I like keeping these straightforward. 
Uh, it doesn't look like we've got any more questions, I don't think. Let me check the other Facebook page once and for all. Um, <clears throat> last last minute question. With positive cash flow properties, if the region is at the bottom of the cycle and therefore the sales prices are lower, wouldn't the rent be too? Okay. Uh, that's a question that's going to take a little bit to answer. Positive cash flow properties work because they're obviously cash flow positive, right? I mean, you don't you don't just go and buy and hope. So if there is a positive cash flow property that we're talking about, either to build or to buy, and where it is in the cycle is always going to be assessed. If you're buying an established property and it's positive cash flow, then you're going to assess where that is in the cycle at certain points that you're not going to want. Are you looking on our Zenium Compass? Where are you actually looking? Do you want to buy it in the development phase or the discount phase or so on? The question here is, if sales prices are lower, wouldn't the rent be too? Well, it all depends on the demand because we have a relationship between demand and price. So if demand, if, there, if we're in this bottom part of a cycle in an area and it hasn't been profitable for developers to bring on new stock, okay, they don't do it. They don't get lending. They don't bring on new stock. So what actually happens is unless that area is dying, the area generally has some sort of growth attached to it in terms of population, okay, just because Australia's population is growing. So unless that one particular area is actually dead and going backwards, then we'll actually have population growth across a large portion of Australia as an average. There's places that go better than others, all that sort of stuff. We're not getting into that. The question relates to the sales prices being lower in the bottom part of a cycle, therefore wouldn't the rent be lower? What's happened is you've just come out of a discounted buying section in the cycle with our Zenium Compass, which you can see up here. Where is he? There he is. So the blue section there, discounted buying. Okay, we've had the peak of the market at red. Down we go. It's all carnage. It's all falling to crap and it's all going bad, and then we're at the bottom of the cycle down here, right? This is what we're talking about. If there hasn't been new construction come on and the area is a normal area that has normal demographics attached to it as an average, then what you'll find is there's a shortage of property in that area. That then puts a pressure on rents. So the first thing that happens at the bottom of a cycle is that you're actually finding rent pressures and rents start to move up. So it's actually a really good time to be looking at positive cash flow property in the bottom of a cycle because what happens is you will get an increase in rent. Those properties generally have their price semi-attached to the rental on the property. So as your property price increases and rent increases, sorry, as your rent increases, your property price generally increases too on a property that's attached to the rent that way. So as you come around from the bottom part of the cycle and we move over here going up, to the, to the good part there and the development side again, then your price, your rent goes up, your price will go up in your property. That's why we look at property, positive cash flow property in all areas of the cycle, but especially in the bottom part of the cycle because we can do things to it if it's established property, like add value, all that sort of thing. All right, that's it. I've gone over time and I don't like going over time. Uh, thank you very much for all the questions. Thank you for the people viewing. And that is us 
for our live Q&A for the month of September. You need to join us next week where we have a special guest coming on in our Zenium Real Wealth program for October. It's going to be October already next week. So join us for that. We'll put some notifications out on the page and we'll tell you who's going to be doing all the speaking. Thankfully, it won't just be me. Don't forget to hit us up on the website. Go to zenium.property slash vault. That's vault as in the safe, not vault as in being electricity shocked to death. Okay, so it's V-A-U-L-T, zenium.property slash vault. Also, grab us on any podcast form or format, whatever you want to call it, Apple, iTunes or Android or any of the others, which is Real Property, Real Wealth Podcast. So look us up for Real Property, Real Wealth on the podcast to grab any of our back editions on audio And thank you to all the listeners who are listening to us on that format now for today. This will be uploaded uh, tomorrow on Friday. All right, that is it from me. And I hope to see you again soon. If you've got any questions, hit us up on the Facebook page. That's it. Scotty from Zenium Real Wealth signing out. Have a good evening.